All right, we continue with our reading through the Acts of the Apostles. We're in the 17th chapter, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 15 of the 17th chapter. These verses can be found on page 926 of those Blue Pew Bibles. If you want to listen, uh, I'll remind you of that page number in just a minute. Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. That doxology is one of Julian Shung's favorites. I thought I heard his voice for a minute when uh, we were singing it. Mita and Louisa are spending the night at Julian and Stephanie's house tonight. Each of us impacts the other as we gather together as one body with Christ as our head. The words that we have sung drip with Scripture. And the offertory that Amanda played is titled, This is My Father's World. What a privilege 
that we have to pray to the one whose world this is. Will you please pray with me? Father, we thank you and we praise you for today. Father, I thank you for the beautiful sun. I thank you for the way that it has come alive in these last few minutes as it sets. And we are reminded, as you have said in your word, that from the rising of the sun to its setting, you are God. You are the one that marks its course. You are the one that orders it every day. You are God and there is no other. Father, I am so thankful that we gather together and we do not gather according to our own ability to comprehend each other or the world in which we live and certainly not you on our own. But you have promised that you would reveal yourself. Father, we praise you for the pictures of Christ that we have already sung about today. Lord Jesus, we praise you that even as the Apostle Paul proclaimed to the Christians in Thessalonica and Berea, that we know that you are the risen and the reigning king because your word says so. And Holy Spirit, we praise you that you have promised to work in our hearts. And to a woman and to a man here today, to every girl and boy, we proclaim before you now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are in need of you to work. Father, for some of us, we feel acutely out of control. And fear is right behind us. Father, for others of us, today is one of those days where we feel like we have fear by the tail. And we're not worried of anything. But Father, for all of us, the temptation to distraction is enormous. And so we ask you, give us the ability to pay attention to these words just for a little while that we might understand what you're doing. Father, give us the gift of your word revealing to us the glories of Christ. And would we as women and men be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory by your power, Holy Spirit. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we're looking at this book of Acts. We've said it time and again, and I'll say it one more time. We like to think that the real title of this should be The Acts of the Risen and the Reigning King Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit through His disciples. It, that title will never catch on. You won't see it in the Bible written that way. Way too long, too much ink. 
Um, it has come down to the church as the acts of the apostles. And yet within it, we have seen that Jesus is always at work, whether it's opening Lydia's mind to understand the things that Paul has said, or whether it's Jesus empowering the apostle Paul to proclaim healing. What we see is that Jesus is alive and he's alive as the king. Last week, we had part one of Jesus versus the Roman Empire. Um, I tried to explain to you how I understood this scene with the Philippian jailer, this, this idea that Philippi was, was this city within the Roman Empire, the site of a historic battle in which the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire and where, from which Caesar Augustus took control and proclaimed himself to be the Son of God. And it's there in this very city of Philippi that we see King Jesus versus the Roman Empire. You guys, part of the problem with being a preacher is that you have these moments of clarity, and the the issue is they usually come on Sunday evenings after the service. I'm not going to lie to you. That's how it usually happens. And if I could go back to last week, in 90 seconds, what I would want you to see is that Acts demonstrates this pattern for us of what mission to the church looks like. It's the pattern of prayer and engagement and relieving oppression in the name of Jesus. Not just relieving oppression, but relieving oppression in the name of Jesus. It's what we saw with Paul last week with this girl who had this spirit of divination. It's what we saw when we saw Peter and John on their way to the temple in Acts 3. It's this engagement with the world. And I wanted to ask you last week, do you do this? Is this the pattern of your life, church? If you're here today and you go, look, I'm not a member of the church, you are are relieved. I'm not asking you if this is your pattern. But if you are a follower of Jesus, is this your pattern? Prayer, engagement, like Paul here, grieving and then relieving oppression in the name of Jesus. That's what it means to proclaim truth, to proclaim the name of Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. We saw last week that that often results in persecution and that this idea of persecution becomes an opportunity for us to bear witness boldly, right? We not only saw that Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 1, we not only saw that this was the pattern of Jesus all the way from Luke chapter 4, but we saw the Apostle Paul bearing that witness boldly. And we asked ourselves, how would that ever happen in our lives? For us to see persecution as an opportunity to bear witness boldly. And the answer is what happened with the Philippian jailer. It's to be set free from our fear. The fear of what people think about us. The fear of failure. The fear of being found out as a fraud. The fear of death that haunts us. To be set free from that fear. But you see, that's what Jesus does. He sets us free from fear. The Roman Empire had that jailer, I mean, had every bit of control of that jailer, almost to commit suicide. And what does Jesus do? Not only did he set free those who were in the jail, but ultimately set free the jailer. And I want you to know, if you are driven by fear, Jesus King Jesus goes into the Roman Empire and into the empire of human hearts and sets us free. 
so that we might be people of the Spirit, people who are marked by kindness. Today, we also see that Jesus reorders our lives. I'm going to say that he's the one in this reading that turns our lives upside down. And that's not only here in, the, in, in this passage. That word upside down also means almost to like lead a revolt. It's, it's, it, is a, it is a sharp word. But this idea of upside down is something that you and I know, isn't it? That sensation that we have when old structures and orders of the world seem to be reversed or are turned upside down, that this sense of control that Aaron was praying about before, that we think that we have, suddenly feels lost and we no longer have it. The image that is forever burned into my mind is my first semester at seminary during 9-11. That time when those planes hit the Twin Towers in New York City. And from that point on, travel was never the same. Nothing was ever the same in an airport. The sense of fragility that all of us feel changed the sensation that the world had been turned upside down. You have other things in your lives that have taken place and you have said, because of this, the world feels like it's been turned upside down. And I want to walk our way through this passage asking these three questions. Who is turning the world upside down? And is it upside down or is it right side up? And then how would we, how would you, how would you and I determine whether it's upside down or right side up? Let's look at these together. I think this is going to go pretty quick. Who is turning the world upside down? Now notice chapter 17. Again, you can turn to it in your Bibles. 926 is the page number. Notice in chapter 17, Paul is still within the Roman Empire. In fact, he's now at the capital city of Macedonia. If you want to turn in your order of worship, there's a map that I put back there for you. You can look at it if you want to. He's traveled 100 miles from where he was in Philippi to get to Thessalonica. And when he's there, he's in the capital city of Macedonia, which again is, is central along this route to, uh, to the coast, which is only across the sea from Rome. Right? This is, this is the Roman Empire. And there we're told in chapter 2 that as Paul comes into Thessalonica, he does something which is according to his custom. In fact, look at all the things that are under control, that don't seem out of control at all, not turning anything upside down, written in verses 2 through 4. Paul and Silas go into the synagogue according to custom. He said for three weeks... Three Sabbath days, right? Now, either that was three consecutive Sabbath days. Maybe he only taught on the Sabbath. But maybe it was more like Berea where he taught every day over the course of three weeks. It was at a minimum 15 days, right? You get that? What if they arrived on a Sabbath and then there was a Sabbath seven days later and then the third Sabbath was seven days from that day? A minimum of seven, uh, 15 days, uh, maybe 21 days where he's preaching Christ and everything in the city is fine. Nothing is being turned upside down, is it? And how does Paul describe, how, how is Paul described as teaching in those two verses, verses 2 and 3? 
He's described as reasoning with the people, right? He's described as explaining to them and proving from Scripture who Jesus is, saying that it was necessary that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead. The Jewish leaders, on the other hand, and again, this isn't the Jewish people. These are the Jewish leaders of the synagogue. The Jewish leaders of the synagogue, however, are described much differently. Even though they're the ones that blame Paul and Silas, right, for turning the world upside down, listen to the way they respond from verses 5 through 7. It says there that they're jealous. It says that the Jewish leaders went out and they found some wicked men and they formed a mob. And they set the city in an uproar that they attacked Jason's house, that they drug him out before the authorities because they couldn't find Paul and Silas. And they blamed Jason. And listen to the words that they said of Jason, starting in chapter 6. These men who have turned the world upside down, being Paul and Silas, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The question is, who is turning this community upside down? Who's turning the world upside down? It seems very clear, even as these Jewish leaders use the same lie that was used against Jesus in Luke chapter 23, before Pilate, saying that he is preaching against Caesar and against the things that belong to Caesar because he is saying he is the king. It seems as if Luke is making it clear that it's the Jewish leaders who are turning this community upside down. But the question is for you, is it Paul and Silas? Is it the Jewish leaders or is it someone else in this passage? What have the Jewish leaders responded to? Well, if they've responded to anything, they've responded to the teaching of Paul and Silas. Again, in verse 3, it says that he had reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, that it was necessary. The Jewish leaders were right about being turned upside down. Everything that they had come to expect. But the question is, if Jesus has come and turned everything upside down, is it upside down? Or is it for the first time right side up. What about you? King Jesus. How has believing in Jesus turned your world upside down? Some of you sing. Some of you sing and you never thought you would sing. <laughs> Some of you go, I never knew I was a sinner until I met Jesus, and now my world seems upside down. Some of you experience the reality 
that Jesus keeps proclaiming to you, look, I'm the king, and you keep thinking, can I just keep you, Jesus, in the box and let my life go on as it were? That there isn't that much that you're demanding from me and your life feels like it's being turned upside down. You see, the Jewish leaders recognized that in the proclamation of the gospel that it was necessary that the Christ would suffer and be killed and raised again from the dead. They saw that this was turning everything upside down. A Messiah who suffered, rejected, crucified, it turned the Jewish leaders' expectations and their power structures upside down. Especially when Paul says it's necessary but, but Paul didn't come up with that, right? And Luke didn't come up with that. Luke quoted Jesus back in Luke chapter 9. If you want to flip there, page 867 in Luke chapter 9. Jesus has come, and I want to remind you to set everything right side up. Luke chapter 9 is this great chapter, and I'm not going to preach it. I would love to preach it. I've been in it all week, and it's been fascinating to me. Starting in verses 18 all the way through 36, I won't read it to you. It's another 18 verses, but you ought to go home and read it. If I was a cinematographer, this is the passage that I would love to shoot on film. And the reason why is because it starts off and it says, Jesus was all alone. And then the next says, phrase says, with his disciples. Well, what does all alone mean? If Jesus was all alone and yet with his disciples, it says in verse 18. And I think the camera lens is tight on Jesus. Jesus is the focus in that 18th verse. And it says, all alone with his disciples. And he asks his disciples a question. He says, who do you say that I am? And the disciples answer and they say, well, you know, some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're the prophet. And Jesus looks at them and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up for the crowd, or for the disciples, because the you isn't directed at Peter singularly, you. Cal, who do you say that I am? That's not what he's done. He's actually saying, who do you all, as a good southern Jesus would do, say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ of God. And then if you look back at that passage, the very next thing that Jesus says is he says, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer, is persecuted, rejected, is killed, and on the third day rises again from the dead. It's necessary. And then he goes on and says that anyone who wishes to come after me must first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then what's interesting is that this thing called the transfiguration happens right after. You want to know what's interesting about that? The question still lingers in Luke chapter 9, who do you say that I am? And God answers that question in the transfiguration, right? They get on the mountain. Suddenly Jesus is with Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets symbolized there with these guys. And, and, and Peter doesn't know what to say. And he's like, let me make these tents, this picture of worship for all of you. And, he, he, and Luke even says he doesn't even know what he's saying at that point. And then suddenly a voice from heaven sounds and says, this is my son either my chosen one or my beloved. But after that, it says, listen to him. Do you, do you get the picture? Jesus has said, who do you say that I am? And then suddenly in the same 
section, Jesus says, God, the voice from heaven says, this is my son, listen to him. And you want to know how it ends? It ends that suddenly Jesus was alone, is how that section ends, alone again. The, the camera lens goes to Christ, and it says that the disciples who were with him, what does it mean he's alone then? The disciples are right there. They were petrified. They didn't even speak of these things. What's the point? I think the point is this. The point is to listen to what Jesus said. It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer, is persecuted, rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, and is killed and on the third day rise again. It's necessary. It has to be that way. It's necessary for that to happen. And the second thing that he said is that anyone who would come after him must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Is that turning something upside down or setting something that was upside down right side up for the first time? And you see, the message of the gospel is that finally, the world is being set right side up. Finally. But what does that mean for you and me? If it means for us to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses daily and to follow us. This one commentator wrote it like this in a short sentence. No longer are we to seek the establishment of our own lives on ourselves but we are to resolutely accept death, taking up our cross and allowing ourselves to be established in Christ. And I'm telling you, this is setting the world right side up. Jesus said it's necessary. The apostle Paul went through the entirety of the Old Testament with these guys, maybe not the entirety, but that's his point, right? He says, I can go anywhere you want in the Old Testament and show you the Christ had to suffer. Isaiah 53 would be a great place for you to go start. Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the brother, of the father, excuse me, the exact imprint of the father. And throughout all of the Bible, we get these images of the world and its system being turned upside down. In the Old Testament, how many times is the younger son chosen before the older son? How many times are we reminded that Israel isn't the largest, they're the smallest? <laughs> how many times does Jesus say, the last will be first and the first will be last? How many times is it that the weak are the ones who get it and not the strong. That the Samaritan is the one who responds correctly. That the woman at the well is the one who sees Christ. This world turned upside down. The return of the king setting things right. Listen, for Jesus to come into your life means to set your life right. Not upside down, but right side up. And central to that is the dethroning of yourself. And see, even as Christians, 
we are constantly trying to take that power back. I sat with some folks this week who are overwhelmed at the sense of being out of control. And it is an amazing encouragement to remind each other, but Jesus isn't out of control. He's the king. He's the king. So how will we determine which way is right side up or upside down? What do we get in this passage? Well, what we see is that that question really asks, what's the authority in your life? How do you know if things are right side up or upside down? I went flying with Jim Timms the other day, and it's all well and good when you're flying through the sky and it's blue and you see the earth below you and you know what side is upside down, right side up. You got it covered, not a problem. Senses are all there, absolutely gorgeous. But we flew into a cloud and Jim was like, okay, now you keep the plane level. And it was impossible. I couldn't do it to save my life. The plane started veering up and over to the left, but I didn't feel it. I thought I was going straight. And Jim was like, do you see this gauge? Do you see this gauge? We're almost starting to roll. And I was like, what do you mean? It feels right to me. And isn't it the way we feel when we fly into storms? Is it upside down or right side up? I've completely lost my bearings. Well, in these two situations, we see two traits. The Jewish leaders from Thessalonica were told in verse 5 that when they heard that the Christ would have to suffer and, and be killed and rise from the dead, and they saw people responding to this and putting faith and going, there's real hope in that, a Messiah who would die for me, we see that the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica, as they saw their loss of control happening, that they became jealous they were controlled by their senses of what they saw around them, the power structures being undone by which they lived. And we see all the chaos that existed post that jealousy, right? But when we read about the Bereans, this second group of folks that they go to, we read this in verse 11. Now, those Jews again, who were the leaders of the temple there, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Berean synagogue turned to the Scriptures and examined them and dug into them and studied them. To say, is this really what it says about the Christ? Is this really what it says about a world that's right side up? It says that they received the word with eagerness. And that many believed. To be able to determine who Jesus is, is to submit yourself to the authority of Scripture. It's that easy, and it's that hard. To say that the authority in my life is not my comprehension of it, but the authority in my life is something from outside of my life, the Word of God, that proclaims that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever 
believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. I don't know if you're ever shocked by the name of our church. Does it ever shock you that the name of our church is called Christ the King Church? I was with a group of people yesterday who have no religious background. They were extremely secular. They were grieving the loss of their brother, father, grandfather. And people kept asking me, you know, what's the name of your church? <laughs> and every time I turned to tell them the name of the church, oh, the church is called Christ the King. I almost stumbled every time. Because I've been preparing for this passage and I thought to myself, I say it's Christ the King, that I recognize that Jesus is the King of my life, that He's turning everything right side up. Why am I grasping for the controls of my life? Why am I saying it's necessary for me to control this thing? But this idea that the world is becoming the way it was intended to be is because the power and the control shifts from self to Christ the King, the suffering Messiah who says that if we follow Him, if we come after Him, we deny ourselves, we take up our cross daily, and we follow Him. You see, it seems to me that when we think about the world being turned upside down, we immediately go to bad things. But, but why is that true? It doesn't have to be true, right? The world... Turning upside down could be something that we celebrate in. This is very good. And I want you to see that as Jesus enters the Roman Empire and this second act, King Jesus in the Roman Empire, where he demonstrates that he is the one who is taking a world that is upside down and making it right side up, that this is a great thing. In fact, I want to end by quoting Probably my favorite graduate from Newton South, John Krasinski. Who would you think I was talking about? <laughs> kid, kid, game changer. This a game changer, right? The king of kings taking control of your life and mine. Being the king. The one who says, if you will come after me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me because I am in control. Having Jesus as a king is a game changer for you and for me. And Luke lets us know here that this game changer is the best thing that could ever have happened. Please pray for me.